Good evening, everybody. We are going to be in Acts chapter 20, if you want to turn there in your Bibles, Acts 20. Is that right? Okay. I've got a new Christian workout program for everybody. It's called Children's Worship, back there. Uh, I think I lost 10 pounds, so if anybody's looking for a new year's resolution, join us. It is a blast. Those kids are awesome. What a blast. But now I'm going to drip, so it's just kind of gross, and probably didn't want to put that on the recording, did we? Oh, well. On Sunday, I talked about, on Easter Sunday, I talked about drinking Kool-Aid, so, you know, um, Jim Jones, a lot of you are too young to even remember that guy, so thank goodness it went over most of the millennials' heads for sure. Um, boy, boy got to guard your mouth. You do, I don't. Um, Acts 20, what an exciting chapter. Um, probably one of the greatest, most impactful for me sermons uh, recorded was Paul's to the Ephesian elders. Such a, such a heartfelt outpouring of uh, a summation of his life and, uh, and turning over the keys you know, to the elders of Ephesus. What a deal for him. Paul had such a heart and such a compassion for people. Every church that he started, he considered them his kids. In fact, he called himself that to the Corinthians. I'm your spiritual father. You've got a lot of teachers, but you've only got one dad, basically. That's how he thought about him. Now, he didn't care whether they felt like that about him or not. He just felt that kind of responsibility as a father would for a son or a daughter. And so when he writes this at the end, it's at the second half of this chapter 20 to these guys, he's literally turning over his family to these men. He's entrusted the Word of God to them. He's taught them faithfully, um, but he warns them. It, it, it isn't easy, and it's constant vigilance on your own walk and guarding the flock as well as taking care of the flock. It's, it's a full-time job, you know, and so he warns them about that and gives them this heartfelt. But Paul's trust and hope, and hopefully we'll learn that tonight, was not in the men that we're going to be overseeing these people, but it was in the Savior whom they followed, the chief shepherd, um, whom they work under, basically. And so that's where we're going to be headed tonight. So it's a great chapter, wonderful chapter. Last week, they had gone through a terrible um, uprising uh, and, uh, and uh, a, a, a almost a riot, pretty much a riot. Uh, at this last city, because Paul, by preaching the gospel, had so effectively brought people to Jesus Christ that the whole town and the whole area was being turned right side up for Jesus. And of course, that hurt everything economically. Those who trusted in idol sales and the you know the temple of Diana uh, and all these things were being were being touched. And that's a great example for us all. There's a lot of there's a lot of symptoms in the world. There's a lot of causes in the world. There's one solution, and the need is Jesus. And when you tell someone about Jesus, a relative, a friend, um, a coworker about Jesus, you've taken care of all of their problems by taking them to the one who can take care of all their problems. That's the key. And so Paul, as he tells everybody about Jesus, simply Jesus, not trying to change this or trying to close the temple or we need to stop the sale of silver, you know, none of that was important. Telling people about Jesus took care of everything else, but because it's such a permanent solution to the people's problems, it does affect a community greatly, for the better, unless you're reluctant to change, which they were. So anyway, they had a big riot. And so 
the last thing we heard last week was the, the, the city manager basically came up and said, we got to settle down or we're going to be in trouble with Rome. So they did. So they settled down. So that's where we pick up today, tonight. Verse 1, after the uproar had ceased, Paul called the disciples to himself, uh, embraced them, and departed to go to Macedonia. That comes up a lot, Macedonia. That was the first place that Paul got the vision, come to Macedonia, a man in a vision telling him to come, and, and so on. Now, when he had gone over that region and encouraged them with many words, he came to Greece and stayed three months. And when the Jews plotted against him as he was about uh, to sail to Syria, he decided to return to Macedonia and uh, Sopater, uh, uh, Berea, accompanied him to Asia, also Aristarchus and Secundus of, Thessalonian, of the Thessalonians, and Gaius of Derby and Timothy and Tychicus and Trophimus of Asia. These men, going ahead, waited for us at Troas, but we sailed away from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread, and in five days joined them at Troas, where we stayed seven days. Now that wasn't, you know, a whole lot of, how's that going to help me on Thursday with my walk with Jesus? But that does give us a layout of Paul's third missionary trip and what he's doing and who was with him and why. He's got a bunch of guys with him from the Gentile churches, and each one of these folks from these individual churches are representatives carrying a bag of money for the church in Jerusalem. That's the idea. The Gentile churches are getting together to help the poor Jerusalem church, and they're going with Paul as he travels back to Jerusalem. It's showing brotherly love. Look, we're not against you as Jews. Hopefully you're still not against us as Gentiles, and we're helping you out. And that would have gone a long way, and it does go a long way, with that understanding that there is no more Jew or Gentile. There's just believers and unbelievers, basically. So a wonderful picture of the love of Christ um, flowing from people. I don't even know the folks in Jerusalem, but we're gonna, we hear that their brothers and sisters that we've never met are in need and we want to take care of them. And so they're doing that. They're bringing this money. So that's why he names all these folks, where they're from and why they're with Paul. They're taking this money. By their, they're not just going to give it to Paul. They're going to go with Paul and, and, and represent, basically. And so it's a, it's a neat thing. So they stop in a few places. Now, he says this. Uh, now, on the first day of the week, Sunday, when the disciples came together to break bread, Paul, ready to depart, the next day, spoke to them and continued his message until midnight. That's a long teaching. You know, on Sundays, it's, it's maybe an hour and a half, 30 minutes of singing, 10 minutes of break time, and then maybe 50 minutes or 45 minutes of teaching. And you still have people that walk out at noon. They're like, okay, it's noon. I'm done. That's my duty. I've done my job kind of thing. It's like this guy, he teaches until midnight. They were so hungry for the word of God. It was so rare in those days. They did not take it for granted. They couldn't believe that they got to sit and listen and learn and, and absorb and take notes and soak it up, you know. And so he teaches until midnight. What a great thing that they would do together, studying the word of God. There's no better thing to do than to study the word of God, to get it into your hearts. It affects you. It changes your life. Now, they met on the first day of the week. There's a lot of controversy. Unfortunately, there shouldn't be, but there's a lot of controversy as to when you're supposed to worship. Some people develop entire denominations around it. You must worship on Saturday. That's the only day to worship. Um, when actually in the Bible, Romans chapter 14, verse 5, Paul writes and says there is no specific day. Now, we did meet the church. The disciples did meet on the first day of the week. They did meet on Sunday. That was a common thing because that's when Christ rose from the dead. So they... They memorialize that. We're going to meet on the day that Christ rose from the dead. That's when we meet. 
you know, the Sabbath is, you know, the Saturday is that's taken up by the Jews. We're not going to interfere. We're not going to try to compete. We're meeting on Sunday, and it was okay. It was okay, but you know, we get excited and, and, and we try to get back to roots or whatever we think we are, and we make a deal out of it to the point where it becomes the deal. There, there's a lot of differences, you know, in ministries. There's different ways to do things. There's a lot of negotiables. That's fine. There's a lot of non-negotiables too, but this is a negotiable. Paul writes it in Romans 14.5. He says that one man esteems a day like all the others, and another man esteems a day, you know, this is it. This is the day. And he says, let each man be convinced in his own mind, but do it as unto the Lord. That's a paraphrase. He's trying to get something across. It's not about those rules anymore. It's not about those things anymore. It's not about how often do you have communion. That's why Jesus said as often. He didn't say when you have this every week, when you have this every month, when you have this every other month. He said as often as you eat this bread. He didn't give a specific thing. But um, I think sometimes we look for reasons to divide, and it's not important. So worship on Saturday. I don't have a problem with that. Go for it, because that's the day you think you're supposed to worship. What I have a problem with is when you tell other people that you're not worshiping properly because you're not worshiping on Saturday. That's the difficulty. See, we're a non-denomination. We're not interdenominational. That's the difference. We're not interdenominational. We're non-denominational. We don't like the things that divide. What's the point? You know, uh, the things that are negotiable, there's not, no reason to divide over them. Um, and this is one of the things they divide over. We still do to this day, and it's unfortunate. We can meet on Wednesdays. You can meet on Saturday nights. You can worship anytime. How about worship God every single day of the week equally? Can't go wrong with that, you know? Anyway, they met on the first day of the week. They came together. It's documented in Scripture. So if you're going to make an argument for a specific day, Sunday then, you know? But we don't, and neither does Paul. And he spoke until midnight. There were many lamps in the upper room. Now, remember who's writing this. This is Dr. Luke. So he's giving us a a diagnosis or a a suspicion as to why Eutychus is about to fall out of the window. There's a lot of lamps in the upper room, he says. That's why he gives us this background. And we were gathered where, where they were gathered together. And in a window, a certain sat a certain young man named Eutychus who was sinking into a deep sleep probably carbon monoxide poisoning, you know, who knows what's happening, or, or just Paul, you know. Um, so I don't feel bad when people fall asleep at church anymore. I just figure it's their sleep apnea. It's their own, you know, it's their, it's their deal. And if Paul had, you know, these guys falling asleep, hey, we're in good company. Anyway, so Eutychus is there sinking into a deep sleep. He was overcome by sleep, and as Paul continued speaking, he fell down from the third story, I don't know if their third story is our third story. That'd be, a, that'd be 33 feet. I, I hope not. I hope it's more like an eight-foot thing, but still, that's 24 feet. That's, that's not good. And was taken up dead. That's a powerful sermon. But Paul went down, fell on him, and embracing him said, Do not trouble yourselves, for his life is in him. Now when he had come up, had broken bread and eaten, and talked a long while... Even till daybreak, he departed, and they brought the young man in alive, and they were not a little comforted. I just smile because that's great. He teaches till midnight. Eutychus falls out because he's so tired, and Paul's going so long, dies. Paul resurrects him. He goes back to teaching until daybreak, and then just goes on. That's amazing. 
That's incredible. I think, you know, maybe, maybe we could do for a little longevity, you know, or, or a little training maybe. We'll, we'll go 50 minutes this week, maybe 55 minutes next week, and we'll work our way up to a 14-hour sermon, you know, kind of thing. We, uh, we watch the um, Little House on the Prairie, and, and then we read the books and everything, and it was, it was a deal to go to church back then. It was, I mean, it still is today. It's a good deal. But they'd take their wagon, they'd get everybody loaded up, everybody looked their best, their Sunday best, the only time they got to wear that dress, and they would just come to church, they'd hear, and they'd picnic, and they'd have games, and they'd stay all day long, and then at the night, they'd go home. I mean, that's, that's neat. Now, a lot of it's because it's agricultural, and you're, you're far away from your neighbors, and that's a time to gather and all that, but what a great thing, you know, to do that, to gather together that breaking of the bread together, that coming together and spending a long period of time. We spend so much of our time with unbelievers all week long. It's nice to have that fellowship with those who love Jesus like you love Jesus. And it, 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 there's more to it than just getting your quick you know, vitamin pill of God's word and running home, but to, to spend some time and get your mind right, you know, get your heart right again for Monday, which is coming like a freight train, you know. It's beautiful. It's neat. And so he teaches all the way until dawn. And they just, they ate it up. They loved it. I love it. It's neat. Now, then we, that means Luke is with Paul, went ahead to the ship and sailed to Assos. I think that's how you pronounce it. There, intending to take Paul on board. For so he had given orders, intending himself to go on foot. He needed a little time, you know. I would imagine, you know, I'm going to walk on foot. I need some time. I don't want any more Because you know how it is. Maybe you don't. But when you're the Christian in the room, you get all the questions, you know. And sometimes I would imagine Paul needed some time like Jesus did. He got away, got up and prayed, got away. You know, instead of going to sleep, Jesus found his, his rest in praying and seeking his father and spending time and fellowship with his, with his father who wasn't going to ask him any questions, who was going to give him that time, you know. And so Paul says, why don't you guys go on ahead? I'm going to walk. I love walking, you know. Um, it's quiet. Um, you can listen to the birds for once. Um, you can you see the trees. You hear the wind. Everything's a little different when you're on that walk, you know, and you're moving and all that, and, and your scenery's changing, and it's good for you. I mean, there's just a whole lot going on here, and Paul says, I'd just like to walk. I'll catch up with you. You know, pick me up over here. It'd be a good thing. I think it's interesting that he said he'd given orders. Um, I was asked that question one time. What kind of, what is your leadership style, J.D.? I said, I I didn't know I was supposed to have one. I don't think I have a leadership style. Um, Is pandemonium a leadership style? Um, I just kind of, and I got to thinking about it, and the reason it's foreign to ask a question like that is because we're not really supposed to have a leadership style. We're supposed to have a servant style. How do you, how do you serve? That's the question. What kind of servant are you? Um, and Paul, as he's going to tell us here in his sermon, what an excellent servant. Yeah, he gives orders, but that's because he needs some time alone. He wasn't bossing people around. He's saying, I want you guys, you guys go ahead. You take the ship. I know you don't want to walk. I know you're tired. I know it was a long night last night. I mean, he's not, he's not making them do something. I want you to carry the ship in front of me. He's not doing anything harsh. He's saying, why don't you guys take a, take a cruise and I'll catch up with you. I need to walk. You know, he gave him orders to do that. 
it's very important you ask yourself that question, I think. It's not what kind of leadership style you have. What kind of servant style are you? You know, How do I serve Jesus? Do I do whatever he tells me to do? Can he give me orders? Do I accept what he tells me to do? And I do it wholeheartedly. You know, um, And I think if you want to be a good leader in your home, then be a good servant of Jesus, which means you respect his authority in your house. You respect his authority over your life. You respect the authority of his word. You respect the authority of his Holy Spirit leading and guiding you. And you don't do anything but what God or the Holy Spirit or his word tells you to do. You'll be an excellent, excellent leader in your home. It's a servant style, not a leadership style. And then the people who are under you, whom actually you're washing their feet by serving them, you see, they'll pick up those things, hopefully. They'll recognize that. Not as weakness, not as, not as he can't make a decision. He's always got to pray about stuff. He's always got to seek God's word. He's always got to wait for the Holy Spirit. Why can't he just make a decision? Hopefully they see that in you. Respect that and emulate that. That's the hope. It's a servant style. Paul's servant style was to always take care of others. Always make sure. But first and foremost, obeying the Lord. So, go ahead. Go ahead of me. We sailed from there. And the next day came to uh, Chias, or Chias. The following day we arrived at Samos and stayed at Trogilium. Um, the next day we came to Miletus, for Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus so that he would not have to spend time in Asia, for he was hurrying to be at Jerusalem, if possible, on the day of Pentecost. Paul's driven at this point. I've got to get to Jerusalem. I've got to get to Jerusalem. And sometimes you know that. I've just got to get to this place. I don't know what's waiting for me, and I don't know exactly why I need to go do this thing. I just know I need to be there. It could be a family event. It could be a Thanksgiving or a Christmas that you weren't planning on going to, but for some reason you feel stirred, I need to be there. Why? Has God, has God given you a word from my father, you know, or whatever? Your wife might say, no. I just know I need to be there. I've got to get there. And Paul has that. And he is so obedient to the Holy Spirit, that he does it. He doesn't have to know what's going to happen there. He doesn't have to know why he's supposed to be there. All he knows is that's where God wants me. That's where I'm going to go. I'm going to do it. What a great servant. So from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called for the elders of the church. Before he goes, before he heads to Jerusalem, he has to give them these last words of encouragement. So this is actually the first leadership conference in the Bible, first one. So he calls for these elders of Ephesus, and when they had come to him, he said, You know from the first day that I came to Asia in what manner I always lived among you, serving the Lord with all humility, humility and with many tears and trials which happened to me by the plotting of the Jews, how I kept back nothing that was helpful, but pro- proclaimed it to you and taught you publicly and from house to house testifying to Jews and also to Greeks, repentance toward God and faith towards our Lord Jesus Christ. And see, now I go bound in the Spirit to Jerusalem, not knowing the things that will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies in every city, saying that chains and tribulations await me. So this is his sermon. This is, his, this is what he's sharing with them. The Holy Spirit's telling him wherever he goes, probably through prophecy, the gift of prophecy, Chains and tribulations await you. That's, it's not going to go well there. At no time does the Holy Spirit tell him not to go, just informs him of what's going to happen there. 
And that doesn't turn Paul away. I like that. I like that. He's going to say this much later on. He's going to say, none of these things move me. That's a hard thing. You know, you, you wonder how much can the Holy Spirit tell me about the future? You know, I want to know everything. I want to know steps one through ten, not just two. And then when two is done, three. I'd like to know all of them. I promise I'll do them all, I tell God, you know. And uh, he doesn't tell me one through ten. He tells me two and then three because he knows me. Because maybe seven isn't good. Maybe nine's really bad, you know. And maybe he knows that these things would move me, you know. Maybe. I don't know. With Paul, it's not the case. The Holy Spirit is free to have this conversation knowing that he obeys orders. He does what God wants him to do. He's led by the Holy Spirit. He's not dissuaded or, or worried. or He's encouraging everybody. The Holy Spirit's seen him get tossed and beat, you know, and rocked, stoned to death, and then raised again, and so on. He's seen all these things happen, and so Paul can be entrusted with everything because he knows none of these things are going to move him. Nothing in this world, nothing in this life, causes him to turn away from his course. And, and, and that's probably the biggest message for tonight. What in this world would change your course from Christ? You know, Would it be, well, I don't even want to mention them. What would change your course? And I want to be able to say like Paul, and I want to pray that way, and I want to, I want to live that way, that nothing would change my course. Nothing would change what Christ has called me to do or his orders that are given to me, they will be fulfilled. I'll do exactly what he tells me to do, even if it means chains and tribulations await me or harm. So he starts off that way. Remember how I lived among you. Remember the example that I set before you. I lived this way. It's not something that, it wasn't theoretical. I didn't show up in a limousine, hopped out, gave my speech, got, collected my 200000 in speaking fees, hopped back in the limo, went back to my posh hotel. I lived it among you. I believed what I was teaching. I lived the way I taught. I was an example, you know. It was practical for me. It wasn't theoretical. You know how I've done that. He starts off with that first, the example. I kept nothing back that was helpful, but proclaimed it to you and taught you publicly from house to house, testifying to the Jews. And here's what he taught. Repentance toward God and faith towards our Lord Jesus Christ. I love the way he words that. Repenting from your sins is the same as repenting towards God. It just depends on how you put it. If you're turning your back to sin, your face is naturally going to be towards God. If you turn your face away from God, you will be turning back towards your sin. And so Paul, the way he taught it was, I'm teaching these people just to turn back to God. That's a whole lot easier than trying to remember not to sin. It's one of the easiest ways to walk with Jesus is to remember, face him always. Read his word every morning, every night, whenever you get the chance. Pray without ceasing like Paul did. Keep your face towards Christ and sin will always be at your back. Now, a lot of people are struggling with this sin or that sin or that thing that's got a hold of me. And they spend forever by putting notes all over and all they think about, honestly, is that sin. Well, I've got to not do that sin. Don't forget not to do that sin, you know. When it's as easy as I just have to remember to worship Jesus. I just have to remember to love him more than I love myself, to serve him, to diminish so that he might increase in my life, you know. And sin is naturally at your back. 
We forget that. I forget that all the time. You know, you focus on that sin because you do it. You know, you blow it. You blow it. You make your mistake. You have your whatever. You do your thing. Whatever it is that your sin is. And boy, it's glaring. And it's embarrassing in your own heart. Whether anybody knows about it or not, it's there. And you're asking for forgiveness and you're begging God, I'm so sorry, I can't believe I'm here again. Uh, How tired are you of me in this position? You've got to be. Because I'm sick of being in this position, you know. And you start focusing on it and focusing on it. And it doesn't help. It brings you down lower. It makes you feel worthless. It paralyzes you from actually ministering the love of Christ to those around you. You become so focused on yourself and your own sin that there's no outreach in your life at all. You shut down. That's Satan. That's what he does. He'd love to shut down evangelism. Love to shut out your outreach. Your ability to open your mouth and share the love of Christ with those around you with confidence. I'm a hypocrite. I can't share John 3.16. I don't even know if I believe it anymore. I'm a worth in and that's Satan doing that. It paralyzes the church. It paralyzes the bride of Christ. Remember that, folks. You are the bride of Christ. And you are dressed in white now. He has given you his righteousness as believers. His righteousness has been imputed to you. You can't improve upon that. You can't accessorize that with earrings or, or, or any of your good works can never help the righteousness of Christ in your life. You've been given heaven. You've been given eternity with God. You are the bride of Christ. Remember that when Satan tries to whisper that you're not, that you're a, a woman of the evening, perhaps. You know, Mm-mm. I'm the bride of Christ. And he loves me with an everlasting love. And nothing can separate me from the love of Christ. Nothing can. So important. So be quick, repenters, turning towards God. Sometimes we're slow to that because we think we need to beat ourselves on the back a little bit longer because we think that's pleasing to God when we beat ourselves up a little bit more to show the, the, broke, you know, the bruises and the scratches and the scars that we've given ourselves because we're sinners. And now I can turn back to God now that I beat myself enough mentally or physically or whatever it is that you do. That's where cutting comes from. That's where it all comes from. Suicide, all that. When actually all God's asked us to do is would you just turn back towards me? Would you let my face shine upon you? Let me see you. Let me see your eyes. Look up, you know. Stop looking down. Look at me. I have loved you with an everlasting love. I have given you grace and mercy. You cannot exhaust my grace. You cannot exhaust my mercy. It's it, it, not that he's challenging us to try. Don't get me wrong. But you can't out his grace as a believer in Christ. And you know what happens? You know where holiness comes from in the church? I tell you this all the time, but holiness comes from understanding how much he loves you. And when you realize how much he loves you, how much grace and mercy he's given you, that's when holiness comes into your life. That's when sin vanishes because you can't imagine. It's not even, it's not appealing to you. It's not even tempting to do that against him. It's a beautiful thing. He set it up really well. He loves us. And so Paul says, I have taught you repentance toward God and faith towards our Lord Jesus Christ. And see, now I go bound in the Spirit to Jerusalem, not knowing the things that will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies in every city, saying that chains and tribulations await me, but none of these things move me. Nor do I count my life dear to myself, so that I may finish my race with joy. And the ministry which I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. 
That's, those are, that's such a great verse. None of these things move me. And I don't count my life dear to myself. And I think that's why none of these things move him. Paul has said, for me, to live is Christ and to die is it's gain. That's graduation day. That's cap and gown when I die. He's looking forward to it. And if chains and tribulations await for me there, then that's, maybe that's my ceremony. I throw my hat in the air at the end of that. You know, I'm done. I'm going home to be with the Lord. That's how Paul lived his life. That's how he considered it. My life is not dear to myself. None of these things move me. I want to finish my race with joy, he says. I don't want to finish my race with sorrow, with regret, with anything left. You know, I want to come across that finish line joyful but spent. You know, And the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus, and that is so important for every one of us to remember, the ministry which you've received is from Jesus. It doesn't matter what anybody else thinks of your ministry. Whatever God's called you to do, do it. You obey him, you serve him, you walk with him. You're a servant of Christ. You're not a servant of the populace. Popular vote doesn't matter. It's not a democratic situation. You do what Christ has called you to do and do it wholeheartedly. And you answer to him also. And Paul says that. I received this ministry from the Lord Jesus and you can bet I'm going to finish it with joy. None of these things move me. I love it. To testify the gospel of the grace of God. That's what I'm called to do. To testify the good news of the grace of God. That's what gospel means. The good news of the grace. That's why the Gentiles were so excited to hear about this Savior. They knew the Jewish Messiah. They knew what they were being taught about the Jewish Messiah. How he was going to be a king and all. But for the life of them, they couldn't figure out how they were going to be a part of it. How is this going to work? And the Jews had their ideas about it. Well, what you got to do is be really legalistic, and you have to be really careful, and you have to walk just so. And the Jews were, and the Gentiles were like, okay. And that's what the Jews would do. You got to be circumcised. Remember, I'm glad you got saved, but you need to be circumcised. Whatever it takes, I guess. And how glad they were when they understood that it has nothing to do with my flesh. It has nothing to do with the day on which I worship. It has nothing to do with all these physical things. Of the old covenant that was a shadow cast by Jesus Christ. That's what Hebrews 4 is all about. Jesus is our rest. He is our Sabbath. He is the fulfillment of every single Sabbath. He's the fulfillment of every single feast. He's the fulfillment of every sacrifice. It's all finished. When he said it was finished at the cross, I don't think most people understood how finished it really was. I mean, it's done. The temple's destroyed. We don't need it anymore. There's no need for the temple. You are the temple of the Holy Spirit now. You need to be born again. You need to be filled with the Holy Spirit. I reside in you, he says. You're not God. Don't misunderstand me. But Christ does live in you. That's the idea. It's no longer I that live, but Christ live in me. And that's the idea. He wants to un- us to understand that. Now it's you. It's your heart. It's what he's looking at. So, I testify this gospel of grace, and boy, it, was, it caught the world on fire. Are you kidding me? He just loves me? He loves me right where I'm at? He does. And he died on, for, on you, for you at the cross while you were his enemy. Not repentant. While you were an enemy, he died on the cross for your sins. And salvation is belief 
What must I do to be saved? Believe on him whom he sent. Believe on him. That's an amazing gospel. That's an amazing testimony. That is our testimony. That's what we share with people. That's what we're called to do. And indeed, now I go, or no, I'm sorry, and now indeed, now I know that you all, among whom I have gone preaching the kingdom of God, will see my face no more. This is the last you're going to see me. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent to the blood of all men. For I have not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God. He taught them everything they needed to know. He left with a clear conscience. You guys have everything. You have all of it. Therefore, take heed to yourselves and to all the flock, among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. You see there where Jesus is called God? A lot of people miss that. The shepherd, the church of God, which he, God, purchased with his own blood. The only person that bled on the cross was Jesus. He is God, come in the flesh. There's no doubt about his deity. Paul says so. But you guys, you shepherds, now that I'm gone, you guys are going to have to watch these guys. Watch this flock. The Holy Spirit's made you overseers. You need to shepherd them. You need to take care of them. Like a shepherd takes care of sheep. Of course there's a chief shepherd. That's Jesus, but you're an underling. You're someone that's been entrusted with a certain portion of a pasture. And you are going to be watching over that. And whoever wanders into your section, that's your responsibility. Take care of them. For I know this. After my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. So in other words, as a shepherd, you're supposed to watch for wolves. Not only do you have to feed and water the sheep, make sure they're taken care of. Of course, we mean spiritually. Make sure there's a meal prepared for them, that they have living water, the Holy Spirit. and You've got the food. You chew on the Word of God. You've got both. You're making sure. you also got to watch out for wolves at the same time. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. He had two sticks. One had a crook on the edge, and that's to get the sheep out of their dumb situations they got into, right? Then you got the rod on the other hand. That was for the wolves. That rod and thy staff, they comfort me. Both are important for the shepherd. They're going to come in. Also, here's the hard part. From among yourselves, men will rise up, speaking perverse things, to draw away disciples after themselves. Therefore, watch. And remember that for three years, I did not cease to warn everyone night and day with tears. He was very impassioned about this. A lot to him that these guys took what he said to heart. They're going to come from, a, from outside, and they're going to rise up from inside, and you need to deal with both. You need to make sure both. Look, I love, I love witnessing, and I love winning souls, and I love people to not be wolves and to become sheep. I love it. It's why I'm here. I was a wolf, and now I'm a sheep slash shepherd, however that works. you know. But you never ever sacrifice the sheep to the wolf in hopes of salvation, ever. Never, never, never. Well, I think they're repentant. I think they're really changed. Can you put them in the, can you put them in the nursery? <laughs> no, we're not going to the nursery. Nope. Well, they used to be a pedophile, but they're not anymore. Nope. Nope. They can, wit- they can be the ministry of mowing, you know, or somewhere where they're not going to come in contact with something that was a struggle before. No, no, you don't do that. And nor do you sacrifice sheep for 
the sake of a wolf might get saved. And that was Paul's warning to them. He warned them about this. Be careful about this. Don't let them draw people away for themselves. And what they mean is not away from your ministry. They don't worry about that. You're not supposed to worry about a, another shepherd who might have a better teaching style. I just prefer Laura Street over Calvary. That's not an issue. Go, go for it. Have fun at Laura Street. Enjoy it. Pastor Paul's a great guy. Enjoy it. No, it's causing people to fall away from Christ and to start following that person. That's the idea. Mm-mm. That's not acceptable. Um, cults, so on. You've got to watch out for that. People that uh, establish authority as you have to go through me to get to Christ. Mm-mm. God hates the deeds of the Nicolaitans. Several times he says that. I hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, and that was the leadership over the laity. I don't like that. Jesus died on the cross to eradicate the fact that you now no longer need another man to get to Christ. I've ripped that veil from top to bottom so that you can boldly come to that throne of grace and mercy in time of need. I don't ever want to see that fence mended, that curtain sewn back together again. No, that's been ripped permanently. But there's a lot of veil menders out there that say, yeah, 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 hold on, hold on a minute. You've got to get a little bit more holy before you can get past me to get to to get to God. Well, God deals with them. Read the book of Revelation chapters 2 and 3. Um, he warns those folks about that. And so Paul says that. Watch out for these guys. Watch out for them. They're like savage wolves. They're going to eat sheep. That's how you know. How do I know if they're a wolf or not? Or just a, wolves eat sheep. Sheep bite sometimes. <laughs> wolves eat them. And that's how you know the difference. Of course, you don't want to wait till it gets to that point. But so, verse 32, So now, brethren, I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. Do you see the follow-up Paul has here? I don't have a problem leaving you with the keys to the ministry because I'm commending you to God. You don't need me. You have God. You also have his word, the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you an inheritance. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. You, God, and the Word of God, and His Bible, look out world. You're set. We're all set. It's exciting. Me on an abandoned island, just me, and a Bible and the Holy Spirit. Wouldn't be a lot of ministry going on there, probably. Just me. But I'll become a mature Christian just with those three elements. That's all it takes. You take out one of those three elements, though, and you get into a problem. You take out the Holy Spirit and just have a man in the Bible. See, the the Bible, the Word of God, is the sword of the Spirit. Without God, we usually grab the wrong end, and we start swinging and banging people on the head with it like a club. It doesn't work, and we end up getting cut up in the process. That's the idea. But when we hold the Word of God as the Holy Spirit holds it, and we have the Lord, then it's used properly. If my heart isn't in it, if I take myself out of the equation, well, then none of it's of any value. God's word is still true. The Holy Spirit is still active. But I'm not affected because I've removed myself from the situation. And likewise, you take the word of God out, and you have just you and the Holy Spirit, and you get excited, and you get away, and you start thinking, and you don't know the difference. You don't have his word as your base. You start getting kind of, well, you get weird. 
and you get wacky. Gold dust starts falling from the ceiling and people get gold fillings in their teeth, start barking like dogs or having the Holy Spirit laughter and so on. Watch out. How was church so great we didn't have time for the Word of God? It didn't. No, the Holy Spirit fell and we just got to laughing and rolling on the ground and we just forgot all about the Bible. You know, be careful. You got to have all three, all three. And so Paul says that I'm commending you to God and the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I have coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. Yes, you yourselves know that these hands have provided for my necessities and for those who uh, are, were with me. I have shown you in every way by laboring like this that you must support the weak. And remember the words of the Lord Jesus that he said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Now that scripture, that's the only place you'll see that quote. It's not in any of the gospels. It's not in any of the gospels. It is more blessed to give than to receive. That doesn't mean that it was a false claim. You know, they said that if, if, if all the words of Christ were written, there wouldn't be enough volumes, you know, to write it in. He said a lot of things. The gospel writers only wrote what the Holy Spirit showed them to write, but this is his. It's better to give than to receive. And that's a great test for yourself. It, who, do you like getting presents more than you like giving? Now, if you're five years old, don't answer this. But do you like getting presents or giving presents? You know, which is, more, which is better? I love giving presents. I, I think I struggle with them not knowing that I gave them the presents. So there's a little pride there, you know. And, and I thought about that as I was studying. I'm like, oh, I just love giving but I really like it when they know it came from me too. So I kind of struggle with that a little bit. I got to thinking, now why is that? Is it because I'm an evil, wicked guy? Or is it because I want them to know how much I love them? That's the idea behind me giving them a gift. Is I give, I give you this because I love you. I want you to know that. If I give you this gift, you might think somebody else loves you. And, and they don't. I do, you know. <laughs> I love you. I want you to know that. We did that one time, a long time ago, and I don't want to share too much, but we had given an envelope to somebody, you know, because we didn't want, and now you all know this, so I'm ruining everything, but we gave them an envelope with some money, and we dropped it off, and we snuck away, and it was great, and they came back, and they ascribed it to this terrible person who hates them and has nothing but evil intended for them, and I'm like, no, I got to tell you, we gave it to you. Don't give this guy credit. He's worthless. He's a, he's a slob. You need to get him out of your life. He's no good. He didn't give you that money. And don't give him any of that money anymore. You know, kind of like, I, it's not the, anyway, I've, I've got it settled now. I like giving gifts because I want them to know that I love them, you know? And then we do the secret thing too sometimes, but I want that hug afterwards, you know, at the birthday party. Thanks, Dad. You're welcome. It's because I love you that I did that. And I don't need the thanks, but I want you to, I want to build this. Look, who do we give credit for all of our blessings? God. He wants us to know where they come from. We're in good company. It doesn't all, he doesn't have, he's not secretly running around saying, I'm going to give you sunshine today, a little bit of rain, you know, here's the love of your life, you know, kind of thing. And you're like, I don't know who gave them to me, but I'm just so thankful. Thank you, Satan. No, 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 no. You know, it was me. God wants us to know that. And we want to give him credit. And so, anyway, 
Paul says, it's more blessed to give than to receive. Jesus said it's more blessed to give than to receive. Paul believed it so much that he actually worked for those that couldn't work as much as he could. I, still can, I can still make tents. Bob here never learned a trade. Or he's crippled up or something's wrong with him and we couldn't heal him or whatever it is. But we made sure he was taken care of too. So I gave him some of my money. We just, it was just ministry. He understood that. And he calls him on that. Do you remember how I did this? I want you to do the same thing. All of this is just, I I want this to carry on. I want it to be like this. See, this isn't Paul's style. I struggle with that sometimes. I get that question a lot. Well, that's great. Yeah, you Calvary guys like to do that. We don't do what we do here at Calvary Chapel Maryville because that's what Calvaries do. We're not that blind and stupid. We do it because there's wisdom attached to it. There's a reason we do these things. I guarantee you this. You go to any other Calvary Chapel, rarely will they ever take a break between worship and teaching. Ever. We're kind of oddballs that way. But it started with wisdom way back when we had the kids in with worship. They needed to check into Sunday school way back when we started. And then the adults would take their kids, check them into Sunday school, then come back for the teaching. So the break was kind of needed for that because we didn't have anybody doing children's worship at the time. And then... It became another reason. People had a hard time in the middle of the teaching. They would get up and walk out and go to the bathroom and come back in. I'm like, you know, it has been a long time. And so we kept the break. There was wisdom behind it. It's not a Calvary's take five-minute breaks in between worship. It's what we do. We don't know why we do it. We just do it. No, we do it for a reason. It's, it makes it less distracting. That's, we love to have teaching of the Word of God without distraction. If you're holding it in, and all you can think about is how much longer is this guy going to go because I've got to go so bad. The Word of God's not getting into your heart because that's all you can think about. So there's wisdom behind it. It's practical stuff, you know. Paul didn't have a, a it's not, it's not a, a, the, the Paul way. It's, look, I did these things because it's got wisdom attached to it. I follow Christ. I serve him wholeheartedly. And you guys decided to come alongside with me because you believed in that ministry. What a blessing it was. Look at these guys. You know, they're come alongside and they supported Paul. When Paul was in prison, they would come along, make sure he had his food, his clothes, his scrolls, so he could read the Word of God. And then they were messengers. They would go all over and tell other people and do what he couldn't do. And he says, now I'm going to be leaving you. I want that to continue because there's wisdom attached to it, not because it's what we do for no reason. And also, please, labor work. Um, Anyway, he finishes up with this, 36. And when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. Then they all wept freely and fell on Paul's neck and kissed him, sorrowing most of all for the words which he spoke that they would not see his face or they would see his face no more. And they accompanied him to the ship. That's a cool glass of water for Paul, right? What a blessing. What a blessing when the body of Christ is on the same side. How it grows. How the word of God grows. How the word of God is spread. How the Holy Spirit works and people are saved when the body's not divided, when the body's not backbiting, when the body's not wishing we were doing something different, but is on board, you know? So beautiful to see. And they wept. And Paul's like, what a refreshing time. 
right before, and doesn't God know exactly what we need? Right before chains and tribulations await you, right before you go to Jerusalem, right before you go on trial, before all these guys, which we're going to get into, I'm going to give you this sweet, beautiful time with these wonderful believers, and you can rest assured they've got this church that you're leaving behind. And now he can leave that in the rearview mirror, knowing, hey, those guys in Ephesus, they got it. I'm focused. I can stay focused on the next thing, you know? Beautiful. You would go around. You would work. You would labor. You would minister. You were never tired. You would feed the people. You would go up on top of the mountain and pray. Then you'd catch up with the God. You did all these things, and Paul learned that from you. And he emulated you, and he did what you did. And now he expects the next generation to do the same thing. Lord, I pray that for all of us, that we would be those examples to those around us, to our families first, to our relatives second, to our co-workers, uh, to strangers, that we would be that example of Christ to them, that we would take to heart the ministry which you've called us to, that word of grace, that testimony of grace, that gospel of grace, Lord, and that we would do it, and none of the other things would move us. None of the things of this world, none of the things that other people say or think would move us from the ministry with which you've called us to, that we would serve you wholeheartedly, keeping our eyes fixed on you, taking heed to ourselves first, our own walk with you, but then also taking heed to the flock around us, God. They're all around us. Any Christian in our path is someone who potentially needs ministry, needs help, needs encouragement, or they may be encouraging to us as they were for Paul here when they wept. God, help us to be a, a unified body, but not for the sake of unity, for the sake of the unity in the Holy Spirit. That's what we want unity in, unity in you, unity in your word. We love you. We thank you for your word. Thank you for the encouragement tonight, God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.